This episode is sponsored by EY. Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Michael Casey and Sheila Warren for the Money Reimagined podcast as they explore the connection between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Michael Casey. Hello, and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey, coming to you with the classic post-consensus festival croaky voice. Today, we're exploring some recent work by the Bretton Woods Committee, a body that was founded in 1983 to help improve the effectiveness of international financial institutions, such as the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. Since then, its membership has grown to 757 individuals and 57 organizations drawn worldwide from finance, business, academia, and the nonprofit sector, and it includes many former government leaders. And I've only just learned now, in fact, that my co-host Sheila Warren is a member of that same committee. Now, in an exclusive for Money Reimagined, we'll be discussing an important Bretton Woods Committee brief today. The report, which is being publicly released upon airing of this episode, highlights the potential for cryptocurrencies, blockchain, and related technologies such as zero-knowledge proofs within three use cases. Those are, namely, to achieve goals of boosting privacy and improving efficiency in identification processes, of lowering costs in international payments and remittances, and of advancing financial inclusion. We're joined by one of the report's authors, Deepika Sharma, as well as by William Dudley, the chairman of the committee's board of directors. Wall Street old hands will know Bill as the former president of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, along with the many other important roles he has held within the financial establishment. Dee is a director of research within the Multi-Assets Strategies and Solutions Group at BlackRock. Before we turn to them, let's welcome my co-host, Sheila. Sheila, how are you feeling after that momentous week. We had 20,000 <laughs> registered attendees, more than 600 speakers, 23 stages. I'm exhausted, but yeah, it, was, it, it was, was great. Uh, it was wild. I, I, I'm post-exhausted thinking about it. I was pre-exhausted going into it. It was phenomenal. I mean, I think there was so much energy in the air. There was so much excitement. And even in the phase that we're in, right? Even in this, in this current moment, which is uh, not necessarily a great moment for our <laughs> industry and for the ecosystem. Yeah. But my hope, I think we've talked about this, you and I, is, you know, I'm, I'm a fan of crypto winner personally. I feel like a lot of things that probably should never get built or launched don't get built or launched in crypto winner. And that isn't a bad thing. I also think that these kinds of moments uh, test us, right? They really say like this, it takes stamina to build something new at the scale and the, and the scope of what we're trying to do as an ecosystem and as a community. And so, you know, you gotta, you gotta ride it out. But we've been through this before. We'll go through it again. Not at all to discount the fact that real people are and have lost real money. And that is obviously something we should never in any fashion appear or celebrate. But I do think the hope is that going forward, we will have more continuity, more consistency in the kinds of projects that, that do survive. I don't know what your take is. This is the biddle moment, as we used to joke, right? It was hodl and then it's biddle. You know, once, <laughs> once the market comes off, just now time to focus. And I felt like there are a lot yeah. of people there who seem to be just enthusiastically saying, look, you know, I'm not really watching the price. I'm here to do yep. this. You know, we flush out a lot of these really bad, bad actors, really. And a lot of the problems that many of us have been highlighting for some time, you know, we address them for what they're supposed to be, learning experiences, lessons, and how we build the right thing. So look, I think there's not going to be as much money floating around without a doubt, right? That will have an impact on this space. Yeah. But there's the chance there's now without all that noise and chaos to be able to get things done. So certainly the hope. 
Yeah. Well, I'll also Absolutely. just say on the note of the Bretton Woods Committee, I'm a woman of mystery, Michael. I contain depths and multitudes. So uh, no, yes, I have been a member of the committee for two years. I was not part of this report, just to clarify. But I do think that there are, there are a number of crypto folks who have been a little on the edges of this. And it's exciting to see uh, crypto and, and the blockchain ecosystem really take a forefront with this report. So I'm really excited to hear more about it. Yeah. Well, on that note, why don't we invite our guests in? Uh, welcome, Bill. Welcome, Dee. Great to be here. Good to be here. Great to, great to have both of you. Great to have both of you here. So like, why don't we start it off? Why don't you talk, Bill, maybe over to you. You can just like give, I'm not sure that our viewers and listeners are necessarily particularly up to speed with what the Bretton Woods Committee is all about. So a very quick primer, if you don't mind, on that, and then we can turn to what the, this particular report's all about. Well, you gave a good introduction. I mean, the Bretton Woods Committee historically has been supporting the IMF and the World Bank because we believe in multilateral cooperation and coordination beats each individual country sort of going off on their own and doing their own thing. But coordination and cooperation isn't just in the realm of the IMF and the World Bank. It also extends to the global financial system. Uh, we have a lot of, we have a global financial system, but we have a lot of sovereign actors. And if they don't coordinate what they're doing, we're just going to end up uh, with a mess. This is particularly relevant, I think, for digital finance, where one of the best applications, well, probably one of the most important applications for digital finance is on cross-border payments. So we really do need a system that uh, is coordinated and managed well. Another issue is regulation. We're up to now, we don't really have much regulation, and we're seeing a lot of people get hurt. Uh, investor protection, consumer protection, you know, it just doesn't, isn't there. And so there does need to be regulatory guardrails, uh, but those regulatory guardrails need to be coordinated across countries, and they also need to be imposed in a way that nurtures rather than crushes the innovation. We think the technology that's being developed actually has a lot of promise. Uh, so we want to encourage the development of the technology, the application of the technology, but in a way that's safe and coordinated. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad to hear that. I think you're probably going to feel like uh, now more than ever, there are folks who are going to be quite supportive of this, right? When there's sort of people who have lost money, have been out of it, you know, and, and, and some pretty spectacular failures of late. You know, we don't need to go into them right here, but I think there's possibly going to be more sympathy for the, the regulatory approach. Dee, why don't you talk a little bit about what this report's about, right? What, what's, you know, just get, again, give us high level before we dive into it. And what, what was the intent here? Why, why was it decided that the committee should, you know, come out and explore these use cases and, and, and talk about what, what could be done with it? Absolutely. So, you know, I think we, as Bill mentioned, are looking at the digital finance community and thinking about not just the use cases, but again, what is the message that we want to bring to regulators and policymakers in terms of the risk, the development of the technology and the evolution of the system? Again, it's something that's new and innovative. And a lot of different players are still coming to grips with what it really means. So the purpose of this particular brief that we wrote, which is uh, one in series of uh, eight different briefs that we plan to write covering different aspects of the blockchain technology, is focused entirely on identifying what are the most tangible and positive use cases that we really see evolving. So we are not really coming up with solutions. Uh, we are actually talking about where the potential of this technology is instead of how the solutions will end up developing, reiterating the fact that there needs to be more of a partnership and collaborative approach between the private market players. That includes the traditional financial system, as well as the, the new kind of crypto community and players that are coming onto the market, um, as well as there needs to be much more participation from regulators and policymakers to make sure that they're safeguarding the system and, and preventing the kind of things that you're seeing play out today. So our 
aim has been to take more of a system-wide approach. Uh, we are looking at the innovations from a lens of financial market players. How does this impact the system and how does this make the system much more efficient as well as more inclusive? So what I think is really interesting is it really is anchored in the technology, right? So it's not necessarily about uh, cryptocurrencies or even crypto assets. It talks through the technical opportunity here, which I think is an interesting frame for the Bretton Woods Committee. I will say that over my years at the forum, I observed with some uh, consternation, surprise at first and consternation, the IMF become more and more anchored in CBDCs and kind of take this CBDC maxi approach, which isn't necessarily anti-crypto, but I think some factions in the IMF have become a little bit anti-crypto and see and thinking that CBDCs could kind of own the waterfront of digital currencies. And so it's interesting to see the committee actually not go in that direction and talk more about the technology. Can you just speak a little bit about that approach? And, and it sounds like that was the intention, but I'm curious just to get a sense since you are so closely tied in some ways to the IMF and World Bank. Well, I think the, the issue here is basically to identify the positive use cases, because if there aren't positive use cases, then what are we actually going to use this stuff for? So the idea is that the current fi financial system has a lot of difficulties. So think about the total amount of spending that's undertaken on finance as a share of GDP. It's actually much higher than it was back in 1950. So the financial system is becoming more complex. It's probably becoming more inefficient. Uh, and as a consequence of that, there is actually quite a bit of room for a new technology to come in that's not legacy-based, that's not batch-oriented, to reorganize how we do things uh, and to enable things to be done in a much more efficient way. Uh, you know, cross-border payments is a great example. I mean, you know, right now that's really expensive. You know, you take the migrant workers who are sending money back to their families, they're, they're, you know, six or seven percent of the cost of the transfer just gets eaten up by, you know, foreign exchange fees and, and other payments. There's got to be a better way of doing this. And so if we, once we've identified the positive use cases in this brief, the next brief is going to turn to technology and basically explain how this technology can do things that the old technology cannot do things. And that, and that creates a, a, a sort of a basis for why we should encourage this, why we should foster this and allow it to develop. I think a lot of our readership would be encouraged to hear that, Bill. But I mean, again, to echo what Sheila was saying, my experience with the IMF, and I was, we had IMF, um, participants in the work that we were doing at MIT when I was there, the Digital Currency Initiative. And it started out to be quite open-minded, but at my sense, this is just, and I think it's shared by a number of people, is the fund has become much more narrow in the way it's pursued these things. And there's a lot of rhetoric about how bad it is. And my sense is, again, a lot of governments as well have, there's, a, there's, there's quite a bit of negativity out there, right? There's, a, there's certainly polarization. There are some people who feel differently. So I wonder, you know, in light of that, you know, what do you expect to be the traction that you would get from this? And maybe Michael, yeah. I think what we're trying to do is point out the era of omission as, a pair of, as opposed to the era mm -hmm. of commission. I feel like the regulators are afraid to approve things because they're afraid what precedent that sets and how it's going to evolve. But if you keep turning down applications, for example, that people want master accounts at the Federal Reserve, uh, that's also creating problems. That doesn't allow the, the whole innovation process to continue. So we're really putting a lot of pressure, too, on the, regulator, on the regulatory side. We feel like they need to lean in. Uh, and engage uh, with the innovators and basically say, here, here's what we need to accomplish in terms of making this safe and, and protect investors and, and consumers. How can you accomplish that? And what can we do to make this workable? Uh, right now, it's, uh, I, I'd say the regulators are, are not really helping move this to a better place. Today's episode is sponsored by EY Blockchain. 
As businesses prepare for the token economy, EY is committed to building a better working world and connecting global business ecosystems on the public Ethereum blockchain. To learn more about the EY blockchain portfolio of products and services, visit blockchain.ey.com. That's blockchain.ey.com. So one thing I thought was really interesting was seeing the identity. So if we've talked on the show quite a bit and had folks on, and we really, I think it's kind of known that digital identity is going to be the key that unlocks an awful lot of use cases, positive use cases. Uh, I'm curious uh, what your thoughts were on that, how you came to that. Was that something that you knew going in or was it something that required exploration and what your views are on that as kind of the gateway to a much more integrated and open system? Dee, maybe I'm over happy to you. take that, Bill. So I think when we looked into, you know, what is really the use cases we want to focus on, there's really been an explosion in terms of ideas around application for blockchain technology. The way we got to digital identity was actually to start with the problem that the industry is trying to solve and look at the magnitude or the size of the problem and what are really the incentive structures that are driving financial institutions broadly to actually go towards a solution. And I think that all comes down to one thing, which is cost. So the cost of compliance with KYC requirements as well as AML requirements, um, you know, have kind of been noted as being, being extremely high. Uh, so I think there was a survey done uh, five years ago that noted that cost to be $60 million per firm. When they did a survey of 700 plus organizations, there have also been a lot of fines and other costs that have come into play. So I think there, there's also been a resurgence in that focus kind of given Russian sanctions. So there isn't a trend of acceleration that, that we identified. But when it comes to digital identity, I think what we tried to do in the brief is actually understand why, if this problem had been identified, you know, back in 2015, 2016, why has it not been solved? What are really the challenges and what could be a potential path forward? And that's how we talked about verifiable credentials and how those verifiable credentials coming from a consumer may not find acceptance by banks, but maybe there are a group of centralized institutions that could come in and kind of fill that role in the context of zero knowledge proofs. You know, our focus has been not only on kind of what are the kind of bigger pieces of the puzzle that this technology can try to solve where the institutions are looking for solutions, but again, what are the roadblocks actually in getting to that solution? And then what can regulators do in kind of providing a path to what a potential answer could look like? So I found this really interesting because you talk about verified credentials and also data privacy. And so one of the reasons, of course, that digital identity schemes have not uh, gain scale, let's say, is the concerns around data privacy or lack thereof, right? And of course, we've talked quite a bit on our show about surveillance capitalism, about what's happening with digital yuan, like just kind of the ways that this technology could actually erode privacy within certain systems. And that's, of course, a design choice that would have to be made uh, at the protocol layer, in some cases, but definitely at the application layer. And so I'm curious about your thoughts on that. And then in addition to that, you mentioned that you think that KYC needs updating, I think is the word. Uh, now, we certainly believe that, but of course, I don't think what you mean is that we need to rethink how we do KYC, which is a position I would personally take. I think what you're talking about is can we technically engage in a verifiable credential that could make the KYC process more efficient and streamlined and reduce the cost of, of that burden you know, at each kind of banking intersection, let's call it. Um, so I'm curious just to confirm that and see if that's your take or if you think we need to really be overhauling the KYC regime, which is the view most of us in crypto do have, given that it was designed for traditional legacy institutions. Uh, over to you. 
I'll just say one thing, then I'll turn it over to D. I think the current regime is really inefficient because institutions are doing the same thing for the same person over and over and over again. And it would be much more efficient if we could just be one and done. So you verify the person uh, that's not, that, that they don't pose a risk, and then that person can take that proof to other institutions, and they're, and they're done. A uh, much more efficient regime than what we have right now. I mean, think about, for example, in, in corporate finance, where you have rating agencies that do ratings of, of corporations. Everybody doesn't have to go out and do their own rating. You get rated once, and, and that becomes the thing that you carry around to other places. We could do this much more efficiently than what we do now. Yeah, and I would, I would just add to that to say, I think this is where, you know, we are kind of making that appeal to regulators and lawmakers to think about how to safeguard consumers, especially around data privacy. So you talked about that is an essential component of how this will develop, you know, who is kind of in control, whether it is the institutions or the centralized players, or it is the ultimate consumer that is owning the identity. So that is a key piece of what needs to be figured out. On your question on KYC, again, we are not talking about overhauling the system. But, you know, as Bill mentioned, there are a lot of inefficiencies that could be solved by technology. Blockchain technology is one piece of the puzzle. But, you know, we are seeing a lot of progress towards solving the problem and reducing the cost burden to the system. And we don't want people engaging in uh, legal activities in the shadows. That's just not a good thing. But we could probably have a system that prevents that in a much more efficient way. Yeah, I think the problem is, Bill, though, that, that, you know, as we have this conversation and we've had many, many conversations with officials and others about it, I think the, the default assumption sometimes is that if you are talking about a, a major change or an overhaul in the approach, then you are just like giving up on, on, on some of this stuff and, and wanting to, you know, accept a few bad guys in. Whether or not that's the case, you know, the conversation is often around this whole risk-weighted approach, the idea that there could be trade-offs. And I was pleased to see in the report allusions to the idea that governments that don't have sophisticated identification systems have got mechanisms now in which they may be able to have a tiered approach. And I, I don't know, I see that being paired with uh, some of the really powerful technologies within blockchain analysis, for example, that can give you a look at these things from a more systemic approach rather than focusing on the individual. So Dee, I don't know if you want to break it down a little bit because you talk about the credentials idea, which is often built around the idea that, you know, the individual has control. They're not necessarily giving up all their PII. It's not necessarily about who Michael Casey is, but whether or not for the purposes of this transaction, the node that I happen to control has been credentialed for that purpose. And therefore you have all the information and security you need to know. This idea that we could actually break out away from the individual identity concept, the idea of the practical usages of that interaction. Is that on the table or are we still kind of have to go back to a PII based, you know, full social security number, ID, et cetera, et cetera? No, I mean, I think it's definitely on the table. And I think that's the, the kind of concepts and solutions that we need to see. I mean, I'll, I'll take my example. Recently, got a mortgage. And again, the, the process that you have to go through is a burden not only on the kind of as, as somebody who is seeking a mortgage, but also on the banks to verify, you know, everything about my background. So you know, there are, I think when we think about like what I would challenge is when we think about kind of the, the identity piece, there are kind of many more use cases associated with it that we haven't even seen develop and kind of come to the fore. I think what we need is, you know, some kind of initial proof of concept being developed, whether that's something that comes from the industry or whether that's something that comes from more of the decentralized participants, I think that's kind of the, the, the to be seen component. But again, as you said, there are kind of the 
important component is that it has to evolve and be relevant. We already have the president of RiskBasic and a lot of a lot of current finance. For example, you withdraw more than ten thousand dollars of money in one go from a, a banking institution that has to be reported. So we've already essentially confirmed that risk-based approaches is appropriate. I also think artificial intelligence could be helpful here. There are ways of doing sort of probability analysis uh, using a lot of real-time data uh, to identify uh, what what are probably secure transactions, good transactions versus bad transactions. So this is actually more nuanced, I think, right? Because the idea here is, I'll give the example for our listeners and viewers who are not familiar with these concepts, that if I go into a bar and I need to show my ID to get into the bar because of age limits, you don't need to know my address, who I am, anything other than that I and the person who perhaps looks like me have the right year of birthday. Not even my birthday really matters, just that I am beyond the you know limiting age, right? And we offer a tremendous amount of information right now, which is not necessary to identify that the core, the nugget of what we need is actually present. And so similarly, the idea here that a lot of us have been putting forth is, what information is really necessary? And so the idea that a wallet could be deemed uh, appropriate for certain kinds of transactions or engagement in certain jurisdictions or whatever it is, certain kinds of services can be separated at some point from the individual holding that. And not everyone needs to know exactly who that is if you have something like a credential that can travel and that can be tied to the wallet. Now that's complicated technically is, you know, for a lot of different reasons. It works in some schemes and not others. I'd also just say, the risk-based approach has led to an awful lot of bias in the system and exclusion in the system. And so I do think even if we are to stick with a risk-based regime, we have to be very cognizant of the fact that certain communities and countries, even individuals, have been deemed too risky without any actual evidence that they are in fact risky. So the hope is that if that regime does remain in place, and I would argue it's got some fallacies built within it, uh, we would be able to create a much more fair and equitable system in which we would not lose giant parts of the world's population to basic services because they were deemed risky, which frankly, in the banking system tends to translate to profitability, right? That the ROI for that community is seen not to be worth it. It isn't so much that the risk per se is there, it's that the cost of doing the analysis that's required in those communities or in those countries is deemed too high for the return that a particular bank will get. And I think we have to be very honest about that. So the hope is that this could kind of, we could technically, whether it's using an algorithm or something else, address that inequity and hopefully solve it. Uh, but I want to shift over for a bit to uh, another use case that you have, because this is very related, which is the idea that you could have more equitable services and sort of provision using DeFi. And so maybe I'll turn it over to you to talk through that use case, because I found that uh, the naming of that, there are three use cases in the report, and I found the naming of that specifically very interesting and very exciting. So over to you to tell us through that, talk us through that one. I can take it away and then, and then Bill pass to you for some high-level comments. But we focused on when it comes to um, inclusion, I think we focus both on the individual as well as the businesses. And we think the, the use case for businesses is even larger. On the individual side, let me start by saying, you know, there are, again, a number of individuals and countries, especially in emerging markets that are unbanked. And even in the U.S., there are a number of individuals that are underbanked. And I think what we have been discussing in terms of the reason for that is, again, the cost of doing business in those countries and communities. The fact that banks had to cut back on providing services uh, because of the higher compliance burden, uh, as you've talked about, and the fact that technology could actually help ease those. From the revenue side, there is added incentive for banks to participate or for organizations to step in and participate. And I think there was a, a survey that we note in our paper around uh, the estimate of being able to 
uh, generate $380 billion in revenue through serving those now considered unprofitable individuals and small businesses. And I think when we step out of that and look at SMEs and small and medium uh, term enterprises, the, the market is even bigger uh, in terms of the lack of financing and how much of an opportunity it is uh, where small and medium enterprises are seeking finances. Financing are not able to get approvals on time to, to deliver what they need to, to kind of sustain their business. And that is a much, much bigger problem that, again, a lot of the multilateral organizations and countries are really focused on. So I think in terms of inclusion, those are the two areas we really see kind of come to the fore, which is around small business and trade finance, um, as well as individuals and improving and increasing the, the number of those that are serviced uh, through banking services. If you can make the financial system much more efficient and drive down the costs, all of a sudden a whole bunch of people that are currently excluded become profitable. And that's sort of what we want to go for. Yeah, it's great to see the trade financing come pop up again. I think it's always been a hugely valuable use case. And, and uh, you know, you're right to mention SMEs, the number of people for whom, you know, it's still basically a cash-based system and they're just you know, not getting access to letters of credit is a huge exclusionary problem for so many small and medium enterprises around the world. So I'm glad to see it approach. But you know, back when it was being heavily looked into back in 2015, 2016, you know, the, back then it was a talk around permission systems. It was largely these networks of trade, supply chains and so forth would come together and approve these things. Uh, I'm encouraged to see you guys use words like DeFi, tokenization. These are concepts that are really much more associated with the more permissionless open models that are prevalent within the crypto community. So I don't know, D, whether you could like explore that. I mean, are you talking here about open systems that rely upon, you know, these permissionless models to generate tokens and use those as identifiers of value or something that's like more the old consortium approach, which I think, to be honest, has failed. So, Mike, I think it's basically let the best horse win. So, you know, we basically want to have a regime in place that's focused on outcomes, not on, on processes, and run a fair race and let the best technology win. If it turns out it, it's an old legacy system, then the old legacy system wins. But you know, I think we're, we're skeptical that that will actually happen if we have a fair race with appropriate reg regulatory guard, guardrails and regulators that are open to the idea of disruptive technologies in their, in their areas. Yeah, I imagine, Bill, that, though, that regulatory part is going to be very important now, given the fact that if you use the word DeFi in some circles right now, you're going to be talking about Terra and Celsius and the big, the big headlines of crypto the last week or so, two, two weeks. Stable coins and cryptocurrencies and, and all that stuff and the speculation that's going on in that, on, in that area to the technology and the blockchain chain and the things that the blockchain potentially can be used for. That's our next brief. Our next brief is going to be on technology and we're going to start to explore like what the technology can do that the existing system can't do very well. I mean, this existing system is very batch oriented, as you know. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, we could move to something that's really 24 uh, hours, seven days a week, uh, instantaneous payments. Uh, and if you do that, all of a sudden, a lot of, a lot of things go away, like settlement risk. Now, settlement risk is a huge problem in the current regime. If we could get rid of settlement risk by moving to a different regime, that'd be huge in terms of making the financial system more uh, robust and secure. I don't think that our, our viewers will be familiar with settlement risk as a concept. So maybe you can just lay on that a little bit and explain that a bit, how that works for our viewers. So settlement risk, think of settlement risk in the stock market today as I, as I, as I buy the stock. But, the, but I don't, actually don't get possession of the stock for two days into the future. So there's this period between where I paid, but I don't actually have the stock in my possession yet. So, you know, imagine someone fails in the meantime. Uh, that could disrupt the transaction between me uh, and, and, and the stock seller. So I think 
settlement risk is about the fact that there are delays. Uh, another example of settlement risk is a lot of, a lot of the retail payments uh, where they're using the ACH uh, automated clearinghouse rails to make payments you know, peer-to-peer between uh, uh, individuals. But that actually doesn't settle instantaneously. It settles the next day. And so there's always a risk of something funny happening in that interval that creates exposure and risk. And that exposure and risk then you know, feeds back in terms of how people behave and manage that risk. When we kind of looked at the cost of that, we found, I mean, it's, it's incredible in terms of post-clearing and settlement. So we estimated $133 billion per year being spent on settlement failures. And that percentage actually increases with market volatility. So in the recent year, as well as kind of during the COVID-led market volatility, those costs have gone up uh, just because volatility has gone up. So, you know, the dollar translation, so even a 2% failure rate has been estimated to result in costs of as high as $3 billion. We are seeing kind of EU regulators come out with new guidelines to actually restrict come out with settlement discipline regimes that are actually going to lead to more fines if, you know, the participants are not adhering to those, those regulations. And again, it's going to be trying to solve for a problem that there isn't a solution for where, you know, on the one hand, market volatility is driving up settlement fails. On the other hand, you're getting squeezed a lot more by regulators. And that's why a lot of the kind of capital market uh, participants are turning towards technology and in particular looking at blockchain, blockchain technology for potential solutions. Uh, just a comment, this is just a predicate, of course, that the Bitcoin blockchain was double spend. And the idea that you wanted to have finality in the transaction and really be able to prove that something was owned by a particular individual, not by, or by a particular wallet, not another wallet, uh, and have security and comfort around that. And so that is a, a fundamental predicate of the blockchain is that you have the ability in real time to determine where something is and who has ownership of it, however the ownership is defined. But over to you, Michael. Yeah, like I, I just again just to highlight one more number. That, I mean, those numbers. I'm glad you mentioned there, D, because like you know, I, I was quite struck by how high those levels of failure are. Not just by the the, the dollars number, but but the percentages. And you said that 14 percent of equity settlement it failed was failing during the pandemic. But even the pre-pandemic highs of five to 10 percent seem pretty high to me. That you know you would expect that that many trades actually aren't deliverable. And you're right; it, it stresses across equity into to trade and everything. So the ending double spending is, is a powerful way of thinking this through. Okay, so then the third u- the use case, the other use case that you have is around remittances of payments. And this is another old chestnut within this space, right? We've been talking about this for quite some time. And clearly, you know, you, there also you highlight significant costs that exist within the system. And a lot of those, of course, borne by the poor who are involved in remittances, but it's not just the poor, it's, it's all payments that are very inefficient here. I think it said global corporations move nearly $23.5 trillion annually, equivalent to 25% of GDP. In addition to carrying transaction costs of more than $120 billion per annum, these processes entail hidden costs arising from trapped liquidity and delayed settlement. So, Dee, what have you found the solutions that these tech could bring to bring those costs down and, and just make for a better, fairer, more efficient system for everybody? Yeah, and, and I think that's the numbers and the magnitude of those numbers that you mentioned are the reason uh, why there's been a lot of focus. So the G20 pledged to reduce the cost of remittances to less than 3% and to eliminate remittance corridors. So basically that means is the, the sum of remittances between two specific countries because you know there are, there are specific corridors uh, that have developed and to bring those costs um, you know under 5% by 2030. And, you know, if you look at the numbers today, we are, again, you know, nowhere near that. I think the 
the World Bank estimated that the cost of cross-border remittances is about twice the G20 target at about 6%. Um, so again, and, and like you said, again, because this impacts the financially vulnerable, um, there is a lot of focus from multilateral organizations as well as, um, you know, just, just broadly by policymakers on, on how to find a solution. Um, I think in terms of, you know, how does the kind of technology come into play here, um, you know, a, a big part of it, again, is to make the payment system much more smoother. So, you know, we kind of couched this under a use case around payments and the evolution of the payments regime. And not only does this impact the individuals through the cross-border remittances, we also talk about corporates um, and how the larger corporate transactions can also be made easier through the system. And then again, you know, like digital currencies are also kind of, you know, also part of that leveraging that same technology. But from an inclusion standpoint, we really think the remittances as well as, you know, in cutting the costs of um, how much is spent on, on corporate transactions are key. I mean, interoperability is going to be really important here. And that's going to be, you know, the, one of the big challenges because we need systems that can talk to each other across borders and work seamlessly across borders. So that's going to be one of the more difficult undertakings. Yeah, I'd really like to dig, dig into this a bit further, actually, because that's one thing that stood out to me. You know, you mentioned, of course, that this is, you're looking about building something in parallel to SWIFT, right? And, you know, SWIFT is the, the national system, the membership body by which, you know, messages are sent around the world to coordinate payments through the existing banking system. But, of course, one of the great uh, powers of instantly settled uh, digital currencies is that you don't need that. It'll, it'll happen on chain itself. So instead, you talked about this multiple central bank digital currency network, an MCBDC, which strikes me as some sort of protocol system for interoperability across central banks. That opens up a whole uh, pile of prospects in terms of whether or not we move away from a dollar standard or not. If, in fact, there is just a mechanism for central banks to kind of interoperably settle and transact with each other. Is that something that's on the table here? I mean, that opens a whole can of worms, I would have thought. I think it's definitely on the table. I mean, I think, you know, if you can, if you can set up a regime like that, then money can move around across, across borders much more uh, you know, seamlessly. Obviously, you know, I don't think that this means the dollar isn't going to be the reserve currency anymore. I think the dollar will still be very important because, you know, we have the U.S. has the deepest, most liquid capital markets in the world. Um, and we have a, have a and we have a very stable rule of law. And those two things are sort of you know essential for a currency to be dominant. So you know this idea that you know if you, if we move to this new regime that somehow the dollar is going to go away, I think you can actually have both. Right. This is a really important point though, right? Because I mean clearly, yes, dollar liquid capital markets trusted to an extent. You know, I think there's a big debate right now about whether or not. The challenges created by the cleavages with Russia and potentially China after you know, the, the, the war in Ukraine uh, lead to this sort of bifurcation of the system. Um, and that's a whole other conversation, I suppose. But nonetheless, at the end of the day, you know, to me, yes, the dollar is the, the currency that people trust to hold and to use as a unit of reference and so forth. But it all comes down to trade ultimately. That's what, that's what it exists for, this purpose of having the settlement capacity. So if we can actually manage that through technology, it does open up a whole different way of thinking about the dollar. And one of the things that, you know, some of us, I myself, have been trying to advocate for is that here, in fact, is the United States opportunity to lead with the dollar as not so much a surveillance mechanism, the means by which all the funds have to pass through a U.S. banking system and therefore have this big KYC regime around it, 
but rather that as a, say, a stable coin or whatever, it is just desired as the reference for everybody else and that we end up with a very different model. Do you see this happening, Bill? I mean, do you see us moving to a world where we've got stable coins, CBDCs and the like interoperating around a dollar standard, which raises questions about the ability to impose sanctions, et cetera, et cetera? I think, we're, I think we're a long way from the world that you outlined uh, in terms of you know, interoperability across border with all these different central bank digital currencies. But you know, I, I think we're going to definitely move in that direction. I think the question is just how long is it going to take us to get there? I think in terms of the Federal Reserve, they're going to be you know, a slow follower. Uh, I think they're going to look at the experience of other countries uh, that have you know, made more progress have more people that are already incorporated in the banking system. One of the problems the U.S. has, of course, is that we have a lot of people that are unbanked. So it's a little hard to move to a central bank digital currency if you don't have a banking relationship at all. Um, I think the U.S. will also be slow to move because the dollar is so important in the world, and they're going to be very careful not to to mess it up. Uh, But I think think it's definitely coming. Uh, I think it's definitely coming. And the Federal Reserve is studying this, the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston. Uh, his partner with MIT to sort of think about like what would a central bank digital currency protocol look like, and a lot of other work is going on in many other countries. So I think it's I think it's coming. It makes sense, right? Uh, what if you, if you can have a paper version of currency, why can't you have an electronic version of currency? And you know, one of our briefs uh, as we as we move our project forward on, on digital finance, one of our briefs is going to drill down deeply into this issue of central bank digital currency. What's your sense of the willingness of other central banks, you know, to actually sort of build those kind of interoperability rails? I think there's definitely a conversation about that already underway. I mean, you know, the Bank for International Settlements, I was talking to someone there and they said, it's in our name, Bank for International mm-hmm. Settlements. So, you know, they may, be, they, may, they may play a key role in terms of helping uh, work towards this interoperability that we need. Yeah, I would just add that, um, you know, a lot of the research that we saw on examining the technology uh, came from central banks, Bank of International Settlements. So there's been, you know, consistent interest in in trying to assess the risks as well as the opportunities that we think will lead to the development. You know, like Bill mentioned, there are a lot of other aspects that are being considered around, you know, the dollar and coordination among the various central banks that may impact how it comes about. We deliberately in the brief in any of the use cases did not take a stand on, you know, who would be the leader and who would be the laggard. I think what we intended to identify is what are the biggest business problems and what are the biggest kind of financial uh, system problems that the technology can be applied to, but actually left the, the solution. It may come from, again, the crypto participants. It may come from financial institutions that are becoming much more aware of these challenges and are putting together desks and, and people that are actually proficient in, in these, but it may also come from central banks and regulators. So we, we are here kind of watching that evolve and, and hope to have a voice uh, and say in terms of making sure that, you know, there aren't systemic failures. Uh, there, you know, there is kind of caution also around weaved in with, with what we think is kind of the, the positives of it. So we are not drowning in one or the other. And just looking at the negative and the speculation and and thinking this is something that we should not be paying attention to. I think this is the time absolutely to be paying attention to this and more regulatory scrutiny that may come as a result of, you know, the terror, the Celsius may actually be good, you know, for the system at the end of the day. Hopefully it's going to spur more regulatory uh, response, but regulatory response in a destructive way, not in a destructive way. What I think is so interesting, of course, is that these things are all symbiotic in a way, right? Like if a CBDC were rolled out in a certain way. These are, these are not monolithic 
opportunities, as you know, right? There, there are a lot of design choices here. And you could imagine theoretically a CBDC that did serve a lot of the purposes of crypto or stables or others. I agree with, I think, what you said, legacy financial kind of really moving in this direction. And even a CBDC doing that is pretty unlikely at this point, but it's not technically impossible. And we're going to have to see how everything else moves you know, together. And, and, and my view has always been that we're going to see a world in which all these offerings have a role to play. And it may be that the market, I think to something you said earlier, will decide which of these things has the most traction, which is the most consumer friendly, which is considered the most secure or stable or whatever the axes of engagement are and the criteria that consumers deem most important, which I don't know that any of us really know. We may have our opinions about what those should be, but it'll be interesting to see what is the actual evaluative criteria that you know, consumers really use and that they that they want. Uh, and it's going to predicate in some to some degree on their understanding. I mean, when you have a population, most people don't even understand the difference between you know, M1. They don't understand like, what bank money is. Right? They don't even have a concept of these kinds of things. It's going to be very interesting to see how this all plays out. But my view is that we're going to see more experimentation as we should. Not everything will succeed. And we're going to see ultimately, I think, a world where you have CBDCs clearly with China that's already, the, the, the horse has left the barn. There's going to be CBDC in the environment regardless of what anybody else does. And we're going to see stables, I think, in some fashion, probably not algorithmic, or at least if that's the case, it'll be pretty defined what that can look like. And then, of course, what I would call pure crypto as well, playing a role perhaps via DeFi or other opportunities that I think are going to, I hope, be really focused on inclusion, gap filling, where legacy financial and even CBDCs aren't necessarily focusing their attention, as tragic as I personally think that is. So I just see a universe in which all of these things have a role to play. They engage each other. And so, Bill, I want to go back. And my view is to land on that point you made, maybe got a little lost, which is interoperability, I think, is the key here. The ability to kind of move more fluidly through these various systems and to make sure that a lot of that is kind of held on the back end. A lot of the complexity of that is not something that a consumer has to deal with or make decisions about. It sort of fluidly happens in the back in a way that is designed to support maximum stability of the entire global economy. Completely agree with that. Good. good. Maybe Sounds like we have consensus. I'm still going to be allowed to be a member of the Bretton Woods Committee. <laughs> <I'm> kidding. <laughs> so, 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 oh, yeah, that's right. You're a member. That's true. I forgot. And apologies again for not like, highlighting my co-host membership of the of the committee. That was a real <laughs> oversight on my behalf. Uh, but, you know, okay. don't have to get everything right. Consensus, that was great. Speaking of which, we'll have to get you guys along next year. It's a pity we didn't get to get you feature at this year's festival, but next year I think we'll definitely be there. Sounds like you have a series of more reports coming. So looking yeah, forward to hearing Every those. six to eight weeks, for- we plan to turn out another brief, Michael. So uh, Please feel free to call on me. I stand ready to help. <laughs> so we'd love to get engaged. Yeah, and, and we'll, we'll look, look forward to seeing what they come. So I, I was impressed, as I said. I thought it was a very open-minded and sort of much more open to innovation perspective than I've, than I've seen come from the IFI community previously. So I'm very encouraged. And I think our, many of our crypto-minded folks will be pleased to do so as well. So thank you very much for taking the time, Bill and Dee, for, to sit down and talk it through with us. Sheila, as always, thanks very much for battling through the aftermath of consensus with me and, and sticking it out. Thanks very much for being here, everybody. Uh, join us again next week for another episode of Money Reimagined. Bye for now. You've been listening to Money Reimagined. Today's show featured Sheila Warren, Michael J. Casey, and guests Bill Dudley and Dee Sharma. Today's show was produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau with additional production support from Eleanor Paul and announcements by Adam B. Levine. Have any questions or comments? We would love to hear from you. Please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, Money Reimagined, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And from all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, 
Thanks for listening. 